Good morning. I'm Christopher Purdy. Delighted to welcome you all to today's edition of All Sides Weekend. It, it is the book show. I have to say right away, send the children out of the room because our panel, uh, just before we went on air, was getting into a real discussion of some favorite quick picks right now that have rather steamy scenes in them. So we will be having a steamy discussion today on All Sides Weekend. My guests are Chris Hickey, uh, the steamy Chris Hickey, who is the Youth <laughs> Services Manager at the Whetstone Branch of the Columbus Metropolitan Library. And it is Chris Hickey who brings us the quick picks um, every month, and she will describe to us what those are and what a quick pick is. Nick White is an author. He's a professor of creative writing at The Ohio State University. He is a raconteur, and anything that he tells you to read, you should read. Nick White is here. Also steamy. Yes, and... (laughs) And the adult in the room, thank God, Chris <laughs> Cassie Rose, who is WOSU's book critic. I'm not quite sure about that. You know, you're, you're, you're as pretty steamy as the rest of here. Who brings us uh, a blog that she writes, which is important for anyone who loves to read, called thelongestchapter.com, and brings us uh, books that really everybody should know more about. So without further ado, uh, let's start with Cassie Rose uh, and get a recommendation <clears throat> for something really terrific to read. I have a terrific book that is coming out, uh, I think they said February 26th, and it's called In Ascension by Martin McGinnis. And it is uh, 500 pages, but you do not think that it is 500 pages when you're reading it. It, it, And it's not that it's a page turner, it's that it is so absorbing in the world that is created and the situation. It is narrated by a woman who is a microbiologist, and in the first chapter, she is on a ship called Endeavor in the middle of the Atlantic, and they have discovered what's called a vent, which is much lower than the lowest part of the earth. And so they are considering how to explore it. And those who do dive in get sick afterwards, not fatally, but just like the flu. And then the submersible that they send down does not come back. Now, her focus is algae, and it's something that she is studying because of the cellular makeup of the algae and the origins of the earth. So two years later, in the next section, she is at a lab in California and on a project that has to do with going into space. And it is her at her work that is going to be able to create a garden because on the ship because the trip will be 19 months and it is going to go beyond where beyond our galaxy. So it is because they now have the methodology for propulsion. When you get into this book and into this world, it is like, if you've ever read Jeff Vandermeer, his Annihilation, that book, when I read it, you feel this sense of another power. There is another level that is present. Not evil, not it's just this that we do not know. And that's what... That's what drove me every night to want to sit down and read this book because there will be you know, several chapters where it's going on about her relationships with the people in the lab and what's going on there. But then this author, and he's got the perfect rhythm where you will get to the end of one chapter and there's the surprise, there's the change, there's the twist, there's a thing you didn't expect and you th- and or of something that may go wrong. Now also going on here, what begins the book too is her is her family. She is uh, from Rotterdam, 
grew up in Rotterdam, and her father worked on the water and keeping it back from the city. That's where her fascination became, although in a way that I won't explain. And she has a mother and a sister. Now, when she is on this space, um, I will say, mission, she can talk to them over the phone, but she cannot. There comes to a point where she she cannot go and visit her family. She is isolated from the world, and she can't talk about what she's doing. It is a blend of mystery, science fiction, literary fiction, compelling just because McInnes is just an awesome storyteller in this, and she is fascinating in how she talks about the world. There's one point where even there's this discussion about how, you know, we think that we are the miracle. Earth is the miracle and life here. And she talks about, but what if we aren't? What if something beyond us is further advanced and we are the equivalent of the prehistoric? And she explains it because of a kind of development. And to suddenly see that or to think that, that technologically we may be like the dinosaurs to someone else, it was just fascinating to read that. Mm. And it's not too technical either. I am not a... uh, I'm not a deep science fiction reader. I wouldn't even classify this as science fiction. But it's enough so that you just, the, the things maybe that I didn't understand, I could, it was okay, because I knew that she understood them. It's, it's a wonderful book. Is this told in first person? Is it told in? Yes, uh, it is. Yeah. It is. So it kept you reading, it kept you absorbed? It did completely. And to the point where, as I said, the book is 500 pages. And I'm always very careful about just because of my reading schedule, can I take on a 500 page book thinking it's going to take me forever to read it. And this did not feel like the 500 pages at all, because of the way it's, it's written, the storytelling, her voice, also this mystery, that mm-hmm. sense of like, as I said, that I got with the, the Jeff Vandermeer, the annihilation, what is out there that we don't know? Now, she's not talking about that, but you're aware that they don't know everything, and they make that clear. One of the things I loved about the Jeff Vandermeer books was that they would come across things and that confusion, that he would describe things, but there's that confusion of unknowing. Mm-hmm. And I loved I loved that. Do, do you feel like that is happening in this book? Like she's seeing things and describing them, but it's not something we truly comprehend because it's so different. That's That perfectly explains it, that confusion. Yes. But as scientists, of course, they're fascinated by it. But it is that, why can't we figure this out? The book is called In Ascension by Martin McGinnis. Is this a writer you knew? No, it's not. I came across it because it was long listed for the Booker Prize last fall. And so I was aware of the book and I thought, I just, I have to read it. A recommendation from Cassie Rose on today's edition of All Sides Weekend Books. Uh, We get together once a month to talk about books with Nick White, with Chris Hickey, and with Cassie Rose. Nick White was telling us a story off mic about a family member that I swear should be his next (laughs) novel. But until that happens, Nick White, what do you have for us to read? Well, speaking of kinfolk, I'm uh, going to mention a writer whose short story collection I'm reading. And she's one of my favorite living writers. And her stories always are populated with characters who feel like people I am related to or should be related to. And it's the Southern writer, Jill McCorkle. And it's her new short story collection, Old Crimes. Um, These stories are 
um, very much in the tradition of, if you're familiar with Southern literature, of Eudora Welty, Alan Gerganis, um, Lee Smith. These take place in the uh, Carolinas primarily. Um, uh, but the, it, the stories are just so voicey and fun and funny. Um, uh, the, the book, uh, her, her stories are, are populated by people who... Um, uh, there's one story called Lineman about this guy who works on phone lines and is dealing with a um, rebellious daughter and a wife who's left him and a mother who is um, suffering from dementia. And it's just sort of about his life. And we're just so brought so closely to his life. And it's a guy that probably if I was meeting in real life, I probably would not be friends with. But but the magic of Jill McCorkle is that she she evokes this voice of this character that just brings me in and I am just with him the whole way. There's another story in here about a group of women who have all been dumped by the same man and they meet every month at this coffee house to talk about him and how awful he is. And uh, the the waitress uh, that the, the server that serves them is uh, sort of becomes a main character because she's, she comes in and listens to their stories and tries to advise them to move on with their lives. Um, uh, but it's, it's just, it's just these wonderful everyday vignettes of people. And, and um, I, I just can't, uh, oversell enough just how adept McCorkle is with language and and the way these voices sort of leap off the page and are an organizing principle to these stories and just how just how immensely funny they are like McCorkle is such a funny writer within sentence to sentence I'm just laughing out loud by these 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 um uh wild esoteric eccentric characters who um who are cussing and drinking and talking bad about their partners and their family but are still somehow lovable and you just want the best for them and so it's just she's just she's just one of my favorite writers and and she's she's um publishes novels and um short stories um and i just i just love her full caveat i studied with her at swanee a few years ago and reading her fiction is wonderful but if you ever get a chance i think she's on tour right now with this book if you ever ever get a chance to hear Jill McCorkle give a reading her readings are spectacular it's just she her her accent comes through and it is just like such a a wonderful sort of like being at a rock concert for uh, books before you worked with her had you read her anything I have yeah 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 do you remember the first time you read something of hers and what your first reaction was I read I read a story of hers that was featured in the best American Mm -hmm. uh, short stories which is an anthology that is published every year and it sort of collects stories that are published in literary journals and usually edited by a guest editor that's a famous writer I think um uh 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 one year it was uh um Alexander Chi but like it's like these 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 big these big name writers and I first read her story I think it was called Magic Words in um that's in her one of her earlier collections called Going Away Shoes um in that uh collection and I was an undergrad in college when I read it because we were supposed to read this anthology for a workshop I was in and I remember thinking to myself when I read this story because she's a southern writer she talks about people that seem very recognizable to me I remember thinking oh my god this is the type of story I want to write this is the type of story she gets it she gets like I feel like I'm being seen I feel like she knows exactly the sort of people I come from I feel like she gets the the humor and the sadness pitch just right Um, and it's also 
very contemporary too. Like she doesn't shy away from the divides that we have um, uh, politically, religiously that are that are sort of in the South right now and all over the country. And she does so with such a deafness and humor and warmth and humanity. I really, really think she's one of our best writers working right now. Does she work primarily with a short story or is she also a novelist? No, she's also a novelist. She, um, she has uh, her, I think her second to last book called Life After Life oh, yes, um, yes, yes. Uh, uh, was, a, was a bestseller. It was, um, there's also another book similar called Life After Life that I think was published around the same time. But this one is about a bunch of people, a bunch of um, older people who are living at a um, old folks home. And um, mm-hmm. one of the characters is suffering from dementia. And it's, it's she, she's so good in the sort of Virginia Woolfian way of getting into the character's minds and the way she explores that in the fragmented memory of that character is pretty spectacular. Nick White recommends Old Crimes by Jill McCorkle, and indeed anything you can find written by Jill McCorkle would be terrific. Yes. Thank you, Nick White, for that recommendation. I'm Christopher Purdy. This is All Sides Weekend Books. We are going to take a quick break and come back with Chris Hickey and quick picks from the Columbus Library. Don't go away. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. We are back with All Sides Weekend Books. I'm Christopher Purdy. Thank you for joining us. If you want to know what... you should read or you would really enjoy reading. This is the show for you. Uh, Cassie Rose is here, WOSU's book critic. Her blog is thelongestchapter.com. Nick White is professor of creative writing in the Department of English at The Ohio State University. He's published uh, novels and short stories. He's working on more. And Chris Hickey is here from the Whetstone branch of the Columbus Library who brings us each month Quick Picks, which are? So Quick Picks are the very hot books out there. We have long hold lists. The idea is you could walk into one of our buildings and see the book that you have on reserve on display. You can check it out. Skip the line. Skip the line. It's Tuesdays that the Tuesdays shelves are, the are refreshed. That, yes, we get the new new titles on Tuesday mornings. And every branch is the same, right? Every branch is the okay. same. Okay, so what do you have for us at Quick Picks? All right, so romance is just always hot. And steamy, steamy romance is very popular. And I've talked, I've talked about Tessa Bailey before, where you have, you know, levels of romance. You've got the steamy romance, you have the spicy romance, and then Tessa Bailey just like <laughs> takes it to another level. So five chili peppers. It's a five chili pepper, like five alarm fire, hot steaminess. Anyway, her new book is called Fangirl Down. And <laughs> I'm sorry. All right, we're just going to laugh about that for a while. Okay, been so, there. <laughs> so this is this is um, so this is a story of a bad boy golfer. His name is Wells, and um, his number one fan. Her name is Josephine, and he, you know, was a great golfer. He's on his way down. He's got a really bad attitude. He's been losing fans and sponsorships left and right. 
Josephine, known as Wells Bell, is the last fan standing. And at the, the time when we meet them on this um, pro golf tour, he just basically walks off uh, the course. He takes her sign and rips it in half. He's a real jerk. Um, and then shortly after that, there is a hurricane in Florida. And um, Josephine is a fantastic golfer herself and is very knowledgeable about the sport. She runs her family's pro shop and the hurricane hits her store very hard. Um, and you would think, okay, maybe she has insurance. It will be okay. But Josephine has diabetes. And so she has to choose, you know, do I get insurance for my family's business or do I get my life-saving insulin? And she chooses the insulin. So she's in a real pickle. And so Wells, feeling really bad about how he treated his one remaining fan, comes to find her. And he finds her in the ruins of the shop and he wants to help. And um, she will not take his charity. So what he decides to do is get back in the game and make her his caddy because she's she's brilliant. She's brilliant in the in the game of golf. She knows her stuff. Um, it is very flirty. So they uh, they go on tour together. It's very flirty. The uh, the sex happens pretty quickly. Um, and, but what I loved about it, listen, you get on a golf cart, things happen. Things happen. Things happen. It's just it's just you know. <sighs> <laughs> Listen, this I thought speaks... about saying something, but I'm not going to go there. <laughs> this speaks to me on a number of levels. Not only do I find golfers attractive in their pants, but also I am a type one diabetic. So this, so I, this I too, like, I, I feel like this book is speaking to me. I know what I'm doing for my weekend. Thank you very much, Chris Hickey. <laughs> but what I love about this book, it's not just like steamy sex. They're, they have a real emotional attachment to each other. They have a deep respect for each other and they fall in love. And it is, it is beautiful it is like these books are predictable, but you know what? Sometimes we need to be comforted by a predictable, Amen. sweet love story, and it will make you blush. It made me blush. So I was reading this when I was on jury duty, and I'm in a room full of people that I don't know, and I'm kind of like leaning over my Kindle, hoping nobody can see over my shoulder as I'm reading. As I'm reading these scenes. But you know what? I loved it. And there's there's going to be a book two coming out in July with a couple side characters. He's a grumpy hockey player and it's called the au pair affair. So we're just going to go in another direction. I'm certain it'll be a quick pick. Uh, I have an advanced reader copy and I'm going to be diving into that very soon. It'll be fun. Just just remind us uh, of the uh, author and the title again. The title is called Fangirl Down and it's a series called The Big Shot series. (laughs) The Big Shots. (laughs) And the author is Tessa Bailey. Tessa Bailey. Well, that's the latest. I bet that's flying out of the library. It really is. Yes. She's just delightful. So you can get you can find it at Quick Picks or, or be number eight hundred and fourteen on the reserve yeah, list. Yeah, there's a long hold list for, for that. Uh, but that you know, look look forward to that. That that could be a beach book or perfect Absolutely. for cold weather. Absolutely, it's you know. an every weather book. Yeah, every weather book. <laughs> and you hear about only here on All Sides Weekend on eighty nine seven NPR News. <laughs> Cassie Rose, rescue us, <laughs> save us, Cassie, from ourselves. I don't think I- I don't think I can. I knew you were going to do this to me, Christopher. Don't, I knew you were. Don't, don't look at me. I'm reading Mula Catherine. I mean, book. Come on, go ahead. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I am going to maybe. Um, I'm going to go to nonfiction. I'm yes. going to go to a book called 1913, the year before the storm. 
And it is, it's not a new book. It is a book that I um, had want to, wanted to read for a long time. And, and it, it became, it was a popular international bestseller. Anyway, it's by Florian Illis. And what it is, is that what he does is that he, see, I, I, I'm still back in the last 10 minutes of this discussion. <laughs> um the book is divided by months, so January to December in 1913, and it is a series of vignettes of what happened in 1913, especially the cultural changes in Vienna and Paris, Berlin, Munich, at a time when much was changing. For example, Schoenberg and his 12-tone scale, he was on stage premiering his work, and there would be a vignette about that. And one of the things that I found fascinating was that if an audience was unhappy with it, they would laugh, they would hiss, they would shake their keys. So they were very verbal if they didn't like it. Or there would be a vignette a lot about Franz Kafka and about his... um, his struggle of commitment to his fiancée, and he would be writing these letters, and he couldn't, he, he was, yes, but no, and yes, but no, and then you see someone's writing him a letter that is saying, a publisher saying, I hear that you're working on a novella, and I think it's called The Bug, and I mean, this is, this is nonfiction, it's true, and he's, and so you get this very alive sense of this year before World War One. There is not any discussion about the war, except you sense that there's, there's, trouble in the Balkans. Or there will be a scene where a talk about this couple has just pushing in the pram with their baby, their newborn named Eva, and it is the Braun family, and she is six months oh. old. And this is the same month that 24-year-old Adolf Hitler has moved to the city, and he's a watercolorist. Oh it is when the Federal Reserve was um, created in New York. Virginia Woolf did open, wrote her first novel, and there were only like 50 copies. So it is this sense, if you're reading about this year and about all of the um, modern cultural events that were happening. Certainly there were a lot of that I didn't recognize, maybe some artists that I didn't recognize, but I found it fascinating just because of the way that you would go through the year and how the people were thinking and feeling and what was happening. And it was it's just a great book to read, especially f- for me, in that I was also reading a book of wanted to read a book of fiction with it because of the, of the balance, because it's the way that it's written with the um the vignettes and it's how it's broken apart. It would be very easy to sit down and maybe read the month of January or of April and then you're content with that and you want to go on to maybe a book of fiction or another book. So it, it would be good to pair up with others. Although I think that a lot of people have just not been able to put it down. Does the war sort of like grow as you read? It, is it, oh, it's it not part of it at yeah, all. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's I mean, we can sense that, you know, maybe they should be paying attention to some things, especially in the Austro-Hungarian Um, in the royalty and some of the things that are going on in the politics, but he doesn't dwell on that. Mm. I think that's also the year the Rite of Spring opened in Mm. in Paris with Stravinsky, and there were riots in the theater with... uh and people were like were, mm-hmm. thought it was revolting. It's now a classic, of course, but people were really. It was so new, and it was so, mm-hmm. you know, steamy. Is <clears throat> what it was, you know. So yes, I I think that's that sounds fascinating. I'm curious to know, off the top of your head, if you were going to complement it with fiction, can you think? Can you name a, yeah. a novel that might work? Oh, that's an interesting question because I would not. Pay- 
on the one hand, I'd want to go down the path of do you want to pair it with a World War One, which is um, oh, who wrote the trilogy? Her name was Pat. Um, oh, there's I'll come to it later. But she wrote a trilogy about the World War One, and there were the poets that were involved in that that were fighting in the trenches. Um, I'll think I can see the books on my bookshelf, but if I think of it, I'll remember. But that I would pair it with definitely, and otherwise I would with a book that um, I would pick it off my reading table of a not of a new one, but of maybe something that yeah. I have been meaning to read. Yeah, I like. There's a trollop that is sitting on my. I mean, you know, a book sitting on my reading you table. Were missing, you- <laughs> <laughs> Well, you were mentioning Virginia Woolf. I was thinking, like, her first novel, I think, was called The Years. Was that her the name of her first novel? I think so. That sounds... And, and like, I would, I, I would... I've never read her first novel. I've, I, mm-hmm. I'm a huge Mrs. Dalloway and To the Lighthouse fan, but I've never read that. I wonder if that would be an interesting book to pair. That would be to read Virginia Woolf. And maybe even to read some of Kafka, too. Oh, right. And yeah, yeah. so that way that you would have that sense of, um, of fiction and, and nonfiction at the same time. 1913, the year before the storm. Is that correct? That's correct. Is a recommendation, a nonfiction recommendation from Cassie Rose on today's All Sides Weekend Books. And uh, Nick White has been telling us about Jill McCorkle. Who else are you reading? So I am reading a poet who has a debut novel coming out, uh, already out, excuse me, Kava Akbar, uh, his novel Martyr. Um, This novel follows the life of Cirrus Shams, who Cyrus Shams, excuse me, who is um, a poet and uh, also in recovery uh, from alcoholism. And he decides that um, he wants his new book or this book that he wants to work on is going to be all about martyrs because he's feeling, um, you know, he he lost his mother um, in this uh Cyrus uh, Cyrus comes from Tehran and he lost his mother in this uh, horrific uh, uh, thing where when the U.S. in 1988 shot down this plane uh, full of uh, Iranians and his mother was on the plane and um, his father had just recently has just recently passed away in the novel and he's dealing with this grief he's dealing with um, uh, uh, him being in recovery and sort of sort of uh, living through that and trying to sort of stay sober and also what it means to be an artist in this particular moment in time. And he hears about this um, this visual artist, this painter in New York who is dying of cancer. And she has opened this exhibit in this uh, this art studio in Brooklyn and she just wants to sit and meet with people in her final days and talk oh. to them. And she's also um, Iranian, I believe. And um, uh uh, she uh, he goes to New York to meet with her and it's about their relationship and it's also peppered in throughout the book is um, uh, uh, stories of his family um, uh, stories about his father his mother um, his uncles um, also there are these imagined moments in the book because he has this thing when he um, before he goes to bed to sort of calm himself down he will take um, he will sort of imagine these conversations between pop culture figures and uh, people in his life. So at one point he has a um, 
He has a, uh, an, there's an imagined chapter between his mom and Lisa Simpson. Um, uh, so, so it's a funny book. It's a, it's a, it's a book full of, uh, full of pathos. It's, I couldn't put it down because it's told by, um, a poet, like the language is exquisite. Um, uh, yeah. And I just, I just really, really liked it. It's Martyr by, uh, Kava Akbar. That's a recommendation from our own Nick White uh, on today's All Size Weekend Books. If Chris Hickey has calmed down now, maybe we should give I hope not. Give us another quick pick from the library. So um, we have a lot of great historic fiction that is new on the Quick Pick shelf. And so I want to share the new Kate Quinn. She's a perennial. She's She writes lots of great. She wrote The Rose Code, um, all kinds of things. She has paired up with Janie Chang, to write The Phoenix Crown. Janie Chang is another best-selling author. She wrote uh, Three Souls. She wrote The Porcelain Moon. And if you don't know what a Phoenix Crown is, I encourage you to look it up and look at images. They are the beautiful headdresses that have, you know, the... the um, the beads and the jewels dropping down from them. They're just exquisite. And um, this book is about four women. Uh, one is a like a, a down-on-her-luck opera singer. There's a bohemian painter, a, a real-life historic figure, Alice Eastwood, who was a renowned botanist, and um, a, a woman named Su Ling, who is a seamstress in Chinatown. This takes place in San Francisco in the days leading up to the Great Earthquake in 1906. And they are all connected in some way to this uh, millionaire philanthropist who lives in this octagon-shaped house in Knob Hill. So there's a, a murder mystery with him, but he collects um, stolen artifacts, stolen Chinese um, artifacts like this phoenix crown and and a robe and some other uh, jade items. Um, so it's about them trying to bring him to justice later on as they discover things about him and how they're tied together and one of them goes missing. But what is really neat, um, so Janie Chang has been wanting to write a novel because she's not seeing a lot of uh, historic fiction about how the Chinese were treated, the restricted lives that they had in the United States during that time. So she gets to really explore that in this novel. But it's it's gripping, it's it's historic, but then you also have that murder mystery um, piece of it. It's it's an excellent read. That's a quick pick from the Columbus it Library. Is. It is. And interestingly enough, I didn't know this, but Kate Quinn is a trained opera singer. Oh. So she's able to write this character, Gemma, from pieces of her own life, her own experiences. And this is an opera singer who never quite got there. Is that... She she comes close. So, they, you know, her, her career kind of goes up and down throughout this book. But I, I felt that I was rooting for her the whole time. She, you know, I'm impressed that it was written by two people, too. I'm always yes. impressed how does, when I how see... How do they do that? You know, they, I'm so I, impressed. They had a, a Google Doc. That, really? And they just went back and forth. They met on a book tour and wow. um, just came up with this concept together. And they used Google um, a Google spreadsheet to uh, input things. And that's how they did that. But it's got to be hard to keep a uniform voice, narrative voice, with two people. That's yes. where I, I'm impressed, to keep that... that that the tone and the atmosphere, the the voice, the use of the words, you just... It felt very cohesive, so yeah, it didn't feel like yeah. two different people. Mm. This is All Sides Weekend Books. I'm Christopher Purdy. We have one more break to take right now, and then we're going to come back with more suggestions of books you want to read on All Sides Weekend Books. Don't go away.
Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Back with All Sides Weekend Books, I'm Christopher Purdy with Cassie Rose, who is WOSU's book critic. Her blog, by the way, is indispensable if you love to read, thelongestchapter.com. How often do you update that blog? I tell myself I want to do it every every um, week, but it turns that's out to be lot. every other. Yeah, that's a lot. It's every other week is where I find my consistency. But check in a couple of times a month and see what mm-hmm. Cassie Rose recommends and then tune into the show when she's here. Uh, Chris Hickey is here from the Columbus Metropolitan Library, our own neighborhood Whetstone branch where she is youth services manager. And Nick White is here as well from the faculty at The Ohio State University. He is a published author of several books and uh is a raconteur as well, and you have a recommendation for us. It's a bit timely right now. Yeah, I started reading Capote's Women, A True Story of Love, Betrayal, and a Swan Song for an Era by Lawrence Lemur, which, of course, right now on television, uh, Feud Season 2, Capote versus the Swans is on, of which this um, this uh, nonfiction book was the inspiration. And it explores the relationship that exists between the famous, some might say infamous writer Truman Capote and the these New York socialites, which include the likes of Babe Paley, um, uh, Lee Radzowell, and uh, Slim Keith, these kind of um, very much uh, socialite, rich, wealthy women. He has this famous line, um, uh, uh, these women may have not been born rich, but they were born to be rich. And from the outside, they look like they have these glamorous, beautiful lives. But But Capote becomes a kind of um, uh, intimate confidant of them uh, and uh, learns that their lives are sort of hollow beneath this beautiful veneer. And I think you were saying um, off air how, you know, you we, we read the book and you don't envy any Mm-mm. of these women. You don't really envy Capote either by the end of it. Um, but th- what I found really interesting about this book that I uh, loved how it's exploring it is the thing that, like, how Capote became in a relationship with these women. I mean, not when I say relationship, I mean a deep friendship with these women, a kinship with them, and and just how different their backgrounds are. You know, like like Capote grew up early childhood, poor in Alabama, um, sort of tossed around in, in distant relations, not, not really having that much of a relationship with his father, having a very tempestuous relationship with his mother, um, uh, and sort of makes it out of that and becomes a kind of... Um, you know, very famous figure in American letters uh, by the by mid-century, especially when uh, In Cold Blood was published. But but before that, how he ingratiates himself with these women and and um, who take him in and their relationship. And you get the sense that when he you know works on this novel that's based on them called Answered Prayers, which he never finishes, how they really felt a deep sense of betrayal by him because they, it was such a such a such a wonderful. Um, uh, a friendship between them, and especially these women, um, uh, say what you will about them. Uh, otherwise, they they sort of have lived their life being betrayed by men, and here comes another man who betrays them, and 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 you get a real, and then you get his side of it too, not understanding what this, or not seeming to understand like what this kind of 
betrayal might mean and how he is frozen out and how that kind of triggers him in a way of like his own childhood. And this book got me thinking in the same way that Cassie was talking about 1913, about pairing it with the novel. I wanted to read some more of Capote when I read this. And one of the things I think I've told, um, I think I've told you this, Chris, uh, off air, but one of my favorite stories ever is A Christmas Memory by Truman Capote. I think it's just a beautiful, beautiful story about a young boy definitely based on Truman Capote's life because he's sort of tossed aside by his relatives who forms a deep and abiding friendship with this older woman who is also tossed aside by the family. They sort of live in the same big falling down house. And the story is just about the Christmases that they spend together making fruit cakes, which on the outside doesn't sound like an exciting read, but you really get a sense that Capote, uh, Capote's talent and his ability to sort of evoke um, the ordinary and make it extraordinary. I am not a particular fan of fruitcake, but the way he describes it in in the story makes me want to eat it. And I think that is a marvel in itself. But it pushed me to also uh, reconsider some of his early work before In Cold Blood, which is probably the book he's most famous for. And so I picked up recently um, at a bookstore um, his first novel, Other Voices, Other Rooms. Let me make sure I'm getting that right. Yes, Other Voices, Other Rooms. Sometimes I get it wrong and say Other Rooms, Other Voices. Um, but it's a, it's a novel about um, a very Truman Capote-like young boy named Joel Knox who um, goes from New Orleans to the small town in Alabama, uh, thinks he's going to go live with his father. His father is nowhere to be found. He's like eight years old, and his stepmother is there. Um, his his uh, stepmother's brother is there, and it's sort of like an exploration, especially at this time that the novel was written. If you've ever read someone like Carson McCullers or Flannery O'Connor, this, this like Southern grotesque, Southern Gothic um, book. But then in the story, there the boy meets this young tomboy named Ida Bell, who he becomes really, really close friends with. And it almost becomes a kind of um, retelling of, not a retelling, but a but a look at this like interesting relationship that's also explored in Truman Capote's really good friend Harper Lee's book, To Kill a Mockingbird, if you remember the character of Dill, which is loosely based on Truman Capote. So you get to see the character of, or a version of Scout slash Nell Harper Lee in other voices, other rooms with um, this character of Ida Bell. And so it's just really, really interesting to sort of see the early work of Truman Capote when... Um, when I think um, by the time we get to answered prayers, um, this thing, this book he's trying to read, I think he, not that he had lost something, but he was a very different writer um, by the time he tried to publish that book. Yeah, I, I, a lot of people didn't realize that uh, Harper Lee and Truman Capote grew up together. They were friends. They, yeah, 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 yeah. As children. Yeah, as children yeah. in Monroeville, Alabama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a recommendation from. That's interesting that we did that. That book uh, and the TV series is making people reassess Capote himself as a writer. Right. And in Cold Blood, which he, I think he called that his nonfiction novel. Right. Because it's right. based on a, a horrible true murder right. case. And it's sort of it's sort of um, it's credited with um, new journalism st- with new journalism, new journalism. starting mm-hmm. the true crime mm-hmm. uh, movement, which we're mm-hmm. sort of with now. I mean, that book is sort of the book that sort of sort of changed in, in many ways. Uh, a version of the landscape of American letters by the publication of that, just because of the things that he was doing with that book. Um, yeah. And I think when he took up with these women in the sixties, I think there was no writer in the country that was more famous at that time. Right. I think he was- right. And I think like right now, I think it's no, no small feat to underplay 
like how he was never in the closet. He couldn't be in the closet. He no, was yeah. he was he mm-hmm. was flamboyantly himself and there's something courageous about yes. that, I think, and there's something uh, about like I cannot imagine. I cannot imagine growing up in the south, um being gay myself. I cannot imagine uh the torment he must have endured growing up and the and the ways he constructed a life to protect himself. Um and the demons he must have had to deal with. And, and yeah, yeah. And I, for a while it worked. Yeah, it's true. Until it didn't anymore. Uh, this is All Sides Weekend Books. Thank you, Nick White, for that recommendation. Cassie Rose, what do you have for us? I, I woke you up there. because. <laughs> <laughs> well, know. I was thinking about whether or not I should. I want to mention that um, Marcus from the production team uh, said it was Pat Barker. She is the one who wrote the World War One trilogy, which is phenomenal. And the last book in that trilogy Ghost Road, if I recall correctly, was one major award. So probably that book could even just stand alone. But that's the one I would would pair with 1913. I'm uh, going to recommend a collection of short stories called Float Up, Sing Down by Laird Hunt. People might remember uh, Zori, a novel that we talked about here that he published, um, I want to say it was two years ago. It takes place in the same rural county of Indiana, and Zori makes cameo appearances. And while these are short stories, it really does read as a novel because all of the characters and the chapters are the first name of the character that is the protagonist in each of the stories. They all sort of glimpse off each other. So, for example, there is a story about Horace, who is walking down the road to fill his gas can so that he can mow the lawn. And young Della, who's a competitive runner in high school, is running out of her driveway, almost knocks him down. And she turns around and she says, you know, sorry, Mr. Allen, and goes on. Well, the moment of the way she turns her head what, how she says what she says, and the way the sun hits her, her golden hair, he is dropped back to a woman that he loved on the island of Crete right after World War II when he was a soldier. The war was over. He was traveling before he got home, and it just totally does him in. And we get this story that nobody knows in this small town of Bright Creek, Indiana. And it's we realize it's why he has remained a bachelor all of his life. And then there is Della, who her mother thinks that she's out for a run, but well, she is, but she's running to see her boyfriend, Sugar, who is in the barn. And they're going to play a game of Let's get naked with, um, <laughs> with um, craft single slice cheese, uh, you know, slices, which is just Lord this is, have mercy. Well, this is the 1980s. OK, so what they're doing is instead of like cards. Yalsberg today. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, I mean, it's very sweet, very and it's very comedic, too, because they're just just comically just idiotic and beautiful and young and they get caught and she's running out of the barn and the mother says well you're I'm going to call your mother well then we get you see how they glance off now that's Della's story well then we get well um, another story where well no actually this is the end of this one well we learn about her mother which is Bethy well Bethy is an ER nurse and she's dead to the world when after her night shift and the thing is is Della can perfectly imitate her mother's voice on the phone and so when Sugar's mom calls it is Della who picks up the phone and talks just like her mother so it's very sweet and innocent the way it goes there's Gladys who to work off her anxiety walks through all the corn 
fields. And her friend Myrtle in one story will come and pick her up at at the end of it. And everybody knows in town that she's walking through the cornfields to deal with the anxiety and her worry about her husband, Wendell, who really not ever got over his uh, Vietnam experience. And then there's Myrtle, who while she's waiting for Gladys in her story, she realizes she has two hours and she decides to go visit a teacher who 65 years ago did not get an assignment that Myrtle wrote. She didn't turn it in and Myrtle got in trouble for it, but she still has it. And she goes to the nursing home and she takes the assignment to the teacher. These stories all are linked in a way that you feel, you can feel the rhythm of the town, the rhythm of the characters, how dear they are, how real they feel, how rare. This is, again, it's 1982. Willie Nelson has a hit song on the radio. And Hank is taking sugar. He's a retired sheriff. He's taking sugar to the top of the corn silo where they're sitting, and he's having him look at all the fields and the land, and he's telling him about a crime that he took care of and maybe something else. And we realize he's trying to say, I want you to see that there's more than just your small world of wanting to be with Della, and Della is his granddaughter, and he also wants to say, I want you to see me, too, that we're a family. None of that is said, but you get that feeling, and Sugar gets it, too. He says, I think I'm being tested, and I'm being seen and drawn in, and he is. We see them all. We feel them all. We love them all, and this, as I say, it's a collection of short stories, but it's more and when you come away from it, you feel you've read a novel. It feels like it's sort of set up in a very similar way of uh, Elizabeth Strout novels, like Olive Kitteridge or Olive Again or uh, mm-hmm. Anything is Possible, these these novels and stories that focus on characters, and they, they each character makes an appearance in the other story, and they're sort of glanced. I love books like that. That's so That's a perfect wonderful. comparison, too. And I usually get uneasy when someone will say, well, I'm going to compare it to this other author or whatever, but that is with Elizabeth Strout, that is perfectly the experience of what you get with Laird Hunt in this collection. Laird Hunt is the author. What's the name of the collection again? It's called Float Up, Sing Down. It's published this month. It's by Laird Hunt. Collection of short stories recommended by Cassie Rose. This is All Sides Weekend Books. And Chris Hickey, I'm going to give you the floor for the rest of the show for more quick picks from the Columbus Library. All right, so I have another. This is a romance and historic fiction book. It is by Tia Williams. It's called A Love Song for Ricky Wilde. So it, take, it takes place today, but uh, has some, uh, some, a, a hint of fantasy that takes us to the 1920s Harlem and the opulence of the Harlem Renaissance. So Ricky is the member of a, a wealthy family in Atlanta. They own a chain of funeral homes, but she's more interested in watching things grow than dealing with the events of the dead. So she moves to Harlem and she opens a flower shop called Wild Things. And there she finds a found family. She moves into a brownstone apartment owned by a woman in her 90s with a big personality. Her name is Della. And... Um, one evening, as the night jasmine is blooming, she meets Ezra, and it, it, the love story between them, and they have a very large obstacle in their way, even though they are perfectly suited for each other. And um, if you liked The Time Traveler's Wife, if that's a book mm-hmm. you enjoy, definitely <clears throat> pick this up and read it. So, um, you know, she she does a great job describing um, 
Harlem in the 20s, Harlem present day, there's a lot of talk about music because Ezra is a musician. So if you enjoy the history of popular music, there's a lot of great detail in there. Mm. She writes with such care and beauty about plants and flowers. So it is very much a rich, descriptive novel. And it's just beautiful. Um, It's called A Love Song for Ricky Wilde. Tia Williams, she writes a lot of great romance, but she's excellent. I highly recommend. I got time for one more. All right. So Kristen Hanna's new book is called The Women. This is also um, his historic novel, and um, it takes place in Vietnam. And this is a book she had been thinking about writing for 20 years. Mm. So it's about a, a woman mm. named Frankie who is a, um, a war nurse in the Vietnam War. And um, she decided to come back to writing this novel after, you know, during the pandemic lockdown and seeing all of the stories about the frontline healthcare workers that brought her back into that headspace. But she she did a lot of great research for this book. And one of the books she credits, it's a book called Healing Wounds by Diane Carlson. And Diane Carlson is the founder of the Women's Vietnam Memorial. So she does, there's a lot of detail. You'll have the heartbreak, the gore, of the Vietnam War, but there, the beauty is within the relationship she has with these other women. So if you really kind of get that Vietnam War experience from the perspective of what the women were doing mm. um, as they were serving in Vietnam. That's interesting because Alice McDermott came out with her book end of last year. We talked about it Absolution. here. Absolution. It's on my yes, TBR yeah. pile. Yes. And it is about women in Vietnam. She took that perspective too. It sounds like the, I'm not trying to compare it to this book. It's really right. very different, but it's interesting that that take is being is showing up in novels. We yes. have one minute, and I want Cassie Rose to remind us of a, of an event that you're doing in April that's now going to be live streamed. Apparently, yes, it is. Anne Lamott is coming on April 24th. It sold out very quickly, yep. and I'm in conversation with her. And they announced Gramercy announced yesterday that they are live streaming the event, so you can Yay. buy tickets to. Uh, Watch it on Zoom, and it's all there on Gramercy on their event page. Because Cassie Rose is there, it's sold out very quickly, but you can write and go to the Gramercy Books website. You can find it there. Mm -hmm. I'm Christopher Purdy. This has been All Sides Weekend Books. Thank you all very much. Thank you, Chris Hickey from the Columbus Library. Thank you, Nick White from The Ohio State University. Thank you, Cassie Rose, WOSU's book critic. Thank you, Chris Johnston, who's made, made it radio for us. We have a senior producer, Marcus Charleston, assistant producer, Aaron Esmont Rabinowitz, intern producers, Amani Bayo, Chris Corcoran, Jacqueline Roshetsky, and David Stein. And thank you all for listening. I'm Christopher Purdy. This is All Sides Weekend on 89.7 NPR News.